0: I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions.
1: The coffee made to California.
2: Broken hearts known. This night we'll share a lover on that dog radio.
1: How the song may be song again. hands spread.
3: Precinct, Jackie was looking so bad Couple of girls from the Catholic school Turning their heads to look back Woo! They were all 16, 15, 14 Just getting away from their dads Busy tea leaping, grabbing things for free Over by the magazine rack Girls are for hanging around arcades, precincts, food halls or even shopping malls But I know what you know At the precinct We had some good times Hanging with the wildlife na, 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 na. But the ladies from the arcade And Jackie, Cherry, kool They're never gonna be
4: First is the value of happiness. Now this is often confused with consumerism. To understand why happiness was so important and why the claim is in the American Declaration of Independence that everyone has a right to equal right to life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, you need to think about what things were like in pre-modernity. Happiness was either something in a golden age that we lost or something that you might get to in heaven if you did the right sorts of things. But the idea that everyone had an equal right to the pursuit of happiness was completely revolutionary. If the natural world presents contingencies, illness, earthquakes, or injustice, you would simply say, well, stuff happens. That's the way the world is. The idea that we have a right to happiness means that we also have a right to intervene, to intervene against social injustice if it looks like there illnesses that could be cured and that aren't simply the will of providence to punish people who were bad in their previous lives. I mean when you say that everyone has an equal right to happiness you also change a bit the notion of happiness itself because it turns out then not to simply mean getting stuff. If you don't view the goal of life as something beyond the world that we live in. It means that happiness is not an end-state, passive consumption. It means that happiness is an active pursuit of being in the world, of creating something in the world, and indeed of giving something back to the world.
5: It's me that's leaving you
6: onion to another. Just like that.
0: All life on Earth uses the same four chemical letters, known as bases, to store genetic information in the form of DNA. Three bases form a codon, a genetic word that represents one of 20 natural amino acids. A string of codons can be read by the machinery inside cells and turned into long chains of amino acids. These chains fold up into proteins which carry out many of the innumerable jobs necessary for life. Earlier this year, Floyd Romesberg of the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California and his colleagues unveiled an engineered organism that does things rather differently. Their bacterium stores information using a six-letter genetic alphabet comprising the four usual bases A, G, C, and T, or adenine, guanine, cytosine and thymine, plus two artificial ones called NAM and TPT3. In a paper published this week in Nature, Dr. Romsberg and his colleagues go a step further by describing how they have coaxed their bacterium into making proteins containing amino acids that are not found in nature. Each unnatural amino acid to be inserted is represented by a novel codon that includes one of the team's synthetic bases. In other words, their bacterium can quite happily read an entirely new, human created extension to the standard genetic code and use the instructions to produce proteins that no organism naturally makes.
7: We're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions.
8: If you think about what scientists get up to, a lot of the time certain kinds of generalisation are dignified with the title law. So you have Newton's laws of motion, you have Coulomb's law, you have the ideal gas law, and so on and so on. And these are not just any old generalization, they seem to have some special status. So the question is what's the difference between a law of nature, say one of the laws of motion, on the one hand, and a mere generalization that happens to just describe the way things happen to be on the other hand.
4: So could you just
7: clarify what you mean by that? What's something that just happens to be a general law as opposed to a candidate for being a law of nature?
8: There are all sorts of generalizations that simply happen to be true but don't seem to have the status of law. For example, I think it's probably a truth about this room now that all the pens in it are more than three feet above the ground. Imagine that throughout the whole history of the human race, including the future as well as the past, the oldest that anyone ever lives is to the day before their 125th birthday. So now it's a true generalization that no human beings live beyond the age of 124. But that seems to be a kind A purely contingent accidental fact about the universe, I mean there might be some upper bound on how long humans can live for but it's probably not exactly until your 125th birthday. Looks like the person that died before that day could have lived an extra day or maybe some other people who hadn't got run over by a bus or whatever could have lived beyond 125. So that's a true generalisation not just about the past but throughout all of time that doesn't seem to have the status of a law.
7: Hi, I said hi. I was still
1: clean.
6: The structure and composition of some of the oldest rocks found along the west coast of South America, particularly in northern Chile, Peru, and Bolivia have long puzzled geologists. Some of these rocks, ancient sediments called turbidites, form on the steep slopes along the edge of a continent where particles of terrestrial rocks accumulate in huge sediment aprons or fans. No obvious surprise then that there should be turbidites along the high steep western margins of the South American continent. But what is surprising when you come to look closely at these turbidites is that they become thicker and coarser to the West. The complete opposite of what you would expect had they been washed off the continent of South America. It is not only the reversed turbidites that caught the attention of early geologists working along the west coast of South America, but also the folded rocks in belts trending parallel to the coast and the truncation of what are today northwest tending structures. The only mechanism that appeared credible to early geologists working in this area was that a huge landmass had once existed off the west coast of the South American continent. It's just onion after onion.
9: books is my profession, but it's more than that, of course. It is also my great lifelong love and fascination. And I don't expect that that's ever going to change. But that said, um, something kind of peculiar has happened recently in my life and in my career, which has caused me to have to sort of recalibrate my whole relationship with this work. And um, the peculiar thing is that I recently wrote this book, this memoir called Eat, Pray, Love, um, which decidedly unlike any of my previous books, um, went out in the world for some reason and became this big mega sensation, international bestseller thing. The result of which is that everywhere I go now, people treat me like I'm doomed. Um, seriously doomed, doomed, like they come up to me now like all worried and they say aren't you afraid, Um, aren't you afraid you're never going to be able to top that? Um, Aren't you afraid you're going to keep writing for your whole life and you're never again going to create a book that anybody in the world cares about at all, ever again? So that's reassuring, you know, Um, uh, but it would be worse except for that I, I happen to remember that Over 20 years ago, when I first started telling people when I was a teenager that I wanted to be a writer, I was met with this same kind of sort of fear-based reaction and people would say, aren't you afraid you're never gonna have any success? Aren't you afraid the humiliation of rejection will kill you? Aren't you afraid that you're gonna work your whole life at this craft and nothing's ever gonna come of it and you're gonna die on a scrap heap of broken dreams with your mouth filled with bitter ash of failure?
10: Did you get around resounding for your way up here? Seems like many dim years ago, since I heard that face to face, or seen you face to face Though the night, I can feel you here. I get these notes on butterflies and lilac sprays from girls who just have to tell me. sits a poet and he trembles as he sings And he asks some guy to circulate his soul around On your mark, red ribbon runner The caressing rev of motors Finely tuned like fancy women in thirties evening gowns Up the charts, off to the airport Your name's in the news, everything's first class lights go down and it's just you up there Getting in to feel like that Remember the days when you used to sit and Make up your tunes for love and Pour your simple sorrow to the sound all you your need And now you're seen on giant screens and at parties for the press And for people who have slices of you from the company They toss around your latest golden age Speculation, well who's to know If the next one in the nest Will glitter for them so i seem ungrateful with my teeth sunk in the hand that brings me things i really can't give up just yet now i sit up here the critic and they introduce some band but they seem so much confetti looking at them on my tv set. oh the power and the glory when you're getting a taste for worship, they start bringing out the hammers and the boards and the nails. Heard it in the wind last night, sounded like applause. Chilly now, in the summer, no more shiny, hot nights. Just the arbutus wrestling and the bumping of the logs, and the moon swept down black water like an empty of light.
11: The White Star Line's Titanic was a technological wonder. A four-stacker passenger ship capable of speeds most of the era's battleships could not match. The Titanic was the largest passenger liner ever built, the most luxurious if you were in first class, and the most highly promoted. It was the sensation of its day. Even before it launched, you could buy Titanic soap, Titanic tea, Titanic towels, Titanic candy, and just about anything else you could think of. Expectations were high, and anything less than a record sailing time from Southampton to New York City would have been a disappointment. So it sailed at its best speed without slowing. The risk was minimal because the ads all said the liner was unsinkable. There were a number of engineering flaws in the design of the Titanic. To begin with, the hull was made up of a type of mild steel that tended to become brittle when chilled. Not really a good decision for a ship that was going to sail the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. But the rivets were iron, and their difference from the metal in the plates created a microcurrent that degraded and loosened them from the hull plates they held on. But beyond a weak hull, there was a built-in failure point.
12: went to kindergarten in the late 1950s in Geraldton, a small coastal town about 400 kilometres north of Perth. Improbably, for that fishing and farming area, and in those parochial and insular times, my kindergarten teacher was an English gentlewoman in her 50s who spoke with a cut glass accent. I wonder now what she was even doing in our town. Anyhow, as a result, I picked up some of her accent, and I've never lost it. It means I speak with this English-Australian twang. I can't help it. No one else in my family speaks like this. I've often wondered how many of my fellow kindergarten pupils grew up with the same alien tones. At that stage in life, of course, children are learning speech patterns and picking up vocabulary. They are natural mimics. They echo what they hear. And of course, some of us, depending on our ear, do that even more than others. A few years ago, I noticed that the small children I was meeting, courtesy of my family raising friends, were also speaking with odd accents and intonations. But this time, the accent was American. And the intonations were straight out of sitcoms, like Friends and Everybody Loves Raymond. These children had been doused in an auditory environment that very often consisted of flip American slang, exclamations and vernacular. Then I gradually realized, it wasn't just the kids.
13: What was his great? Forget who you are behind someone else. Cause you know there's a power that is greater than I. It's greater than you and I. It's more than the sum of what love was between us. We'll go. It's greater than I. It's greater than you and I. It's more than the sum of what love was between us. We'll go there too.
14: Be listening to Billy's Biggie Bag of
0: Billy Onions. I raced back from our house in Dover, going back to where my father slipped off the cliff. My brother, Michael, was with me. Getting to the edge of the cliff, I cried out to my father that I was coming. Daddy, I screamed, wanting to hear a response. There was none. There was no flailing no more swimming the face of the deep was stilled and a small mass was being carried out to sea three fins encircled the carcass keeping secure their lot their livelihood as if saying we need to eat too Andes sedang mendengarkan sebuah tas besar penuh dengan onions yang punya bill Ed, what's the name of this uh, radio program that I've been making? I don't know. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Are you sure? Yes.
6: bag of onions you're listening to bill's big bag of onions
15: our sires age was worse than our grandsires we their sons are more worthless than they so in our turn we shall give the world a progeny yet more corrupt That was the way of the world, according to Horace, a Roman poet, writing in about 20 B.C. He has no shortage of contemporary successors. Doomsayers of the past two centuries have blamed, among other things, novels, the radio, jazz, rock and roll, television, horror films, Dungeons and Dragons, video games, the internet, smartphones, and social media for the sad decline of the young. John Protzko, a psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, though, wondered whether things might be not quite so gloomy as they seemed. To try to bring some rigor to the question, he went hunting for examples of a cognitive experiment called the Marshmallow Test. This test, first performed at Stanford University in the 1960s, measures how good young children are at self-control, specifically whether or not they can defer a small but immediate reward, such as a marshmallow, in favour of a bigger one later. It was one of the first examples of a standardised psychological test, so it gave him plenty of historical data to work with.
0: Onion is...
6: As Onion Does...
16: But your heart will not oblige you Well i
14: Not so long ago, Britain's charities could do no wrong, widely admired and morally impregnable, but their sanctity has slipped lately. In rapid succession, they've been criticised for aggressive and expensive fundraising, for doing dodgy deals with big business, for selling their donors' data and paying their executives six-figure salaries. This week, it's for playing politics with taxpayers' money. The government said that it's going to stop them using government grants for political lobbying and campaigning. Some charities say they're being silenced. The charity sector's huge. 165,000 registered charities in England and Wales. Most are small and rely on voluntary contributions, but many of the big ones, Oxfam, Save the Children, Christian Aid, for instance, get big chunks of government money. It adds up to £13 billion a year. And many of those charities have been spending part of their income on campaigns. Oxfam's perfect storm ads attacking austerity policies, cancer research on junk food, tobacco packaging and the price of alcohol, for instance. They say they should take on cause as well as consequence. Critics say they've become politicised. Ministers say government money shouldn't be used to lobby government. It all raises fundamental questions about charity. What conditions should there be on how they use their money, particularly government grants? Is lobbying and campaigning central to their purpose or a distraction from it? Has selfless altruism turned into just another business, complete with dubious practices, corrosive competition, and fat cat executive pay? Above all, what should a charity be and what is it for?
0: Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a copy production for Cole Radio.